Get lit. Welcome back to Get a Little Lit, the little version of our literary podcast where we discuss all of the sidebars, the rabbit holes, and the interesting facts that don't necessarily fit into our author biography version of this podcast, but are still related to literature. I am your host, Steph Spars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker. And we have a very exciting episode to bring to all of you today about um, the printing process as a whole, but specifically in the context of um, early America. Uh, We are releasing this episode around the 4th of July, and um, I've always sort of been curious about how the Declaration of Independence got spread around at a time when printing presses were not necessarily widespread. Um, So we have lots of exciting stories to share, um, but the entire history of printmaking, I think, is interesting and obviously worth years of study. Um, So we're going to happily condense it into about 20 to 30 minutes uh, so you can get a lovely primer. Um, But this episode is full of scandal. There'll be moments of of shock and awe. um, And it will be about as tea-laden, I think, as the Boston Tea Party was itself. So we have lots of exciting things to get to today. Flawless transition, Stephanie. Thank you for that. Yeah, I can't wait to learn about early American printing. And I think um, without the ability to spread ideas quickly across a populace with something like the printing press, then who knows where our revolution would have gone. So I think that uh, this is an integral part of American history, let alone literary history. Absolutely. And speaking of revolution, we've had revolutionary advances in our research capabilities because of our incredible intern, Jack, who did the research for this episode. So um, thank you for bringing that version of this revolution here. Uh, But we're really looking forward to it. And this research is excellently done. Yeah, thanks, Jack. All right, so let's go ahead and take things back. Um, Of course, as I mentioned, People study print history their entire lives. The Newberry Library downtown Chicago has an extensive and incredible collection um, of books relating to printed materials and the history of the book. Um, And there are dozens of really interesting shorter books that you can also take a look at. Um, Maybe I'll post some of those on our Instagram that I have found interesting over the years. Uh, But it's really, really compelling to sort of find out how these ideas wind up getting spread. Um, So originally, right, books aren't necessarily available to the public. Public isn't literate, right? People don't all get the opportunity to learn how to read or to write. Um, And books were often a sign of wealth. Uh, Wealthy families would have their own collections of books. That's why a lot of times when you go in uh, to a, you know, antique bookseller or something, you'll see, you know, the collected works of William Shakespeare all bound in the same leather, Families would have um, or purchase these collections to kind of demonstrate their their own wealth and status, um, which I think, again, very, very interesting. Uh, it was very difficult to transmit books, right? If you look at any medieval manuscript, say, they're often copied painstakingly by monks. Um, when things had to be written down by hand, it took a lot more time. Um, and of course, we know that the advent of the printing press changed things completely. If we go all the way back, or I guess back to early written documents. Most handwritten documents from 2500 BC to now are written with something called iron gall ink. Um, And this is a powder, a powdered concentrate that gets mixed with other things, other liquids, which included beer, you know, because it was readily available. Mm -hmm. Um, Water or white wine gets swirled around um, and then it gets right dipped into. So use some kind of quill or some kind of like scribe thing uh, to go ahead and do that. Each 
line of script could require, you know, anywhere, any number of dips into that inkwell, but it's a huge waste of time, right? You write one or two words maybe, and then you have to go back and dip your, uh, get more ink and then you produce it. So ultimately that's a terribly ineffective way uh, to write, but it's the only way to do so. Well, I I think it isn't the only way, but it's already a vast improvement on the process of using something like clay tablets or whatnot to chisel things into that may have a more durable capability, but aren't something that you can do even as easily as dipping your quill and writing a couple more letters or words. So this is not first generation communication technology either. That's true. And even before that, you know, other ways of documenting things just wind up being memorization in the oral tradition. Uh, And so I think it's safe to say that we've come a long way since then. And thank goodness, because if I had to memorize things that I needed to retell, I wouldn't do very well and wouldn't have made it very far in society at all. I think that's all of us is true. That's the the wealth of, of written language in general is the fact that it is independent of a person's consciousness. So you can read what someone wrote 200 years ago in the same words that they wrote them in. Now the meanings may have shifted, but still the words are the same. And that, this is a sidebar in our sidebar episode. I would be curious to see what the, you know, we don't really need to memorize things anymore because we have so many different ways of documenting and transmitting them that it isn't really a skill that I think lots of us in the modern day have compared to people 150, 200 years ago when memorization was a part of school, right? Children had to memorize different sorts of things and recite them. Um, But also even before that, uh, when people, you know, the only way that people would be able to do things was to memorize it. You know, we barely have phone numbers memorized in today's day and age. Uh, So I'd be curious to see how um, even our capacity for memorization has sort of shifted mentally. So um, let's go ahead and jump ahead a little bit. And we're going to head on over to Gutenberg, which I think many people, that's that's the printing guy that everyone knows. If you don't know anything about print history, you've probably heard of Johann Gutenberg. Um, he revolutionizes the way that we're able to transmit with his printing press in 1436. Um, but then in jumping ahead about 200 years or so, in 1638, the first printing press in the British colonies arrives to Massachusetts. Massachusetts by boat. And this is where our story really begins. Um, We get one printing press in the area. They start to be sort of shipped over. They're not very easy to transmit, right? Of course, you have to pack up a lot of pieces. They're large, they're heavy, they're industrial. Um, And they wind up becoming increasingly popular in what will become America because of the revolution that's occurring, right? We need access to all of these printing presses because there's lots of ideas that need to be transmitted. Of course, this makes things easier, but doesn't necessarily eliminates the need for handwriting. Many people know also in history about Timothy Matlack, who was the sort of officially elected scribe for the Declaration of Independence. Um, He was a clerk in the Pennsylvania State House and then was chosen to write this document, which I think is very cool. Um, He also gets a name drop in National Treasure. Again, very fun. I believe he actually is in the flashback, isn't he? As a foremost expert on this piece of media, Stephanie, I will defer to your judgment uh, and memory here. So in defense of memory. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll have to. I guess this is now. I have to go back and watch National Treasure. Oh no. Oh no. Um, but I'll I'll see if I can find where he he definitely gets name dropped if he doesn't appear. So the original Declaration of Independence is printed as a broadside, and this is basically another word for poster. Um, These ones get displayed around the town, right? If you want people to be able to see something, of course, you don't necessarily have a a literate population that's able to understand it, but b access to printing enough copies to hand out, right? So they print these large broadsides, they hang them up in public spaces and squares and on lampposts and things like that. Um, And this is how they get information out to communities. So on July 4th, 1776, John Dunlap, who is a Philadelphia printer, takes a manuscript copy of the Declaration and then has it printed as a single side broadsheet. So the first time that the Declaration of Independence then appears in the newspaper, which this is really getting things out into the hands of individuals because the newspaper is much more widely circulated, um, is actually by a printer named Benjamin Town. And he is also based in Philadelphia. Um, So on July 6, 1776, the Declaration appears in the Pennsylvania Evening Post. Um, The Post is published on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And the Declaration made the front page. How exciting. I think it is exciting. I mean, this is ostensibly a work of treason, and it's on the front page of a newspaper in a colony. So this is a big deal. It is. Town, however, seems kind of obsessed with controversy, though, based on his uh, history. He's sort of an interesting person. So Town is openly a patriot as indicated by the fact that he's willing to publish the Declaration of Independence on the front page of a newspaper. However, he was also known as a turncoat and very much an opportunist. Um, John, do you uh, want to describe to us what a turncoat is? No. Turncoats were people who basically just flip-flopped sides throughout the war. Um, I guess traitor is another way to describe them, but someone who's kind of hot and cold. So he winds up switching allegiances several times throughout the course of the war, um, depending on where depending on who was occupying Philadelphia at the time. So if the British were occupying Philadelphia, guess what his side he supported? Mm. And vice versa. Right. Um, However, by the end of the war, he's viewed as a traitor, all told. Yeah, it's a dangerous game you play. Either, like, you benefit in the short term or you benefit in the long term if your side wins. So this is a dangerous proposition for a young, a small business owner. So, um, yeah, I don't know. You'll have to tell me the exact reasons and how he turncoated before I, I apply my sympathies any further. (laughs) Great. Well, most of his subscribers and advertisers also struggle with his legacy. So he winds up losing them. Um, But he tries to sort of figure out what he needs to do. He starts printing the Pennsylvania Evening Post every single day, making it the first daily newspaper in the United States, which I think is very interesting. But by the time he's doing this, it's actually only a single sheet. And he sells it by himself on the street. So I don't really know how credible of a news source it is, but um, he does make a valiant effort, um, but it does ultimately fail, and he ceases the publication efforts in 1784. Wow. Right. So unfortunately, 
Um, however, documents, as we know, um, and one of the problems with paper is that it deteriorates quickly. So John, as you allude to at the beginning of the episode, of course, writing something down in stone, it has a lot more staying power, a couple hundred years more staying power typically than your average piece of paper. Um, and the same thing starts to happen to the Declaration of Independence. The document starts to erode. One of the other things that contributed to the fact that this page is deteriorating or paper in general is because iron gall ink is highly uh, erosive. So one of the other things that also contributes to the deterioration of the document is actually not just the paper, but the ink itself. It was discovered about a decade earlier that that iron gall ink that was readily available and being used um, was actually very erosive after about 15 or 20 years. I'm sort of curious to know if that was because of the acid content that might have existed in the mixture, right? So you've obviously got the powder, and then when you mix it with, say, wine, um, there's a lot of acid in that. And so I'm wondering if that, you know, kind of caused it. But regardless, lots of documents actually deteriorate ink first as opposed to page first. Um, so you can see record of, you know, the ink actually being the hole in the page as it deteriorates wow. rather than, you know, the paper just crumbling or something like that. So we have some interesting pictures. We'll post those on the Instagram um, and Twitter feeds, but it's pretty cool to look at. So the Declaration of Independence then is in pretty rough shape. Um, they needed to make engraved copies of this. So a master engraver named William J. Stone actually actually engraves the mirrored version of the handwritten document. Um, An engraving, of course, is the print, right? So they'll take an original document, they'll engrave it onto metal often, and then make prints of that. So the documents that we do have that represent the Declaration of Independence do reflect and actually are the handwriting, but often made from this engraving. So he then takes this engraving, rolls it with more lasting ink, um, and then presses Presses it into paper. This was commissioned by John Quincy Adams in 1820, who was a president. Yep. Good job, me. Um, and the engraving whole process for the Declaration of Independence takes three years. They produce about 200 copies of this engraving, um, and one or two of them actually uh, are available at the Newberry Library in Chicago. You can go see them, which I think is pretty cool. Wow. So there are many other important documents that benefited from the various improvements to the printing process. Um, one of them is Washington's farewell address. He doesn't actually publicly deliver this address, um, but rather it appears on September 19th, 1796 in the Philadelphia Daily American Advertiser. Um, and then various news publications pick it up and disseminate it. So when you think about this, again, how revolutionary it might be that uh, we have a president, but that president is going to step down from power, right? A concept that really hasn't been seen, especially across Europe before, right? When monarchs come to power, they come to power for life um, or until they choose to abdicate. And the idea that even just after a couple of years, George Washington stepped down um, to allow this new democratic process to operate was revolutionary in itself. And Let's hope that it stays as a peaceful transfer of power, um, but I believe that that's something that's testing uh, our will as a country even right now. So, I mean, this is 
This is cutting edge, revolutionary, and still divisive even today. You're right. And I think the fact that George Washington um, is getting out this speech, this is incredibly important because he does a very eloquent job, I think, of explaining what he is doing. And so the fact that this is going out on a national level so everyone can understand this, I think is so important um, in understanding why he did what he did and what impact it will have. And the legacy he hopes to leave. Like, True. The, the thing about being the first is that you leave a um, an expectation or uh, some type of pattern that people can follow. And largely, that's what he established in this farewell address. Which, again, we wouldn't maybe have access to if it hadn't been written down and printed on a national scale. So another document that benefited from the printing press um, is Common Sense, written by Thomas Paine. Um, originally, it's published anonymously as a series of letters called Plain Truth, which I think is a real bold way to phrase what you're going to be talking about. Um, but then they eventually become the pamphlet that we know as Common Sense. Um, he tries to get it published, but it gets rejected by up-and-coming printing presses because of how controversial it was. It was very liberal, very forward-thinking. Um, and printing presses often fell um, under the jurisdiction of law, right? So you could get in trouble for printing things um, that went against the structures of power. Unfortunately, that same sentiment exists in countries around the world today. Um, and I know we've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, Robert Bell, however, who's a publisher in Philadelphia, um, decides to take a chance on this. Um, he is, quote, overcome with zeal end quote, at the prospect of printing this 48-page pamphlet. And so on January 10th, 1776, it officially makes its debut, which I think is pretty remarkable. Yes, and also the length, like 48 pages. So it's not a small, like, broadside. You're, you're changing out your type multiple times. Like, this was an endeavor to make this many. Yeah, it took a, it took a lot of energy. Um, and he promotes this pamphlet in Philadelphia papers. Um, so as a result of this, the demand for common sense grows so high that they actually have to do a second printing. Wow. So the impact that the printing press and the early American printing systems had really contributes, I think, incredibly greatly to the American Revolution as it occurred. Um, the British policies, of course, are able to circulate initially much more quickly, right? If the king ordered something from across the ocean, it would get sent over, printed, and then disseminated. As a result, um, you also have people who are becoming a lot more resistant, I think, a lot more quickly in knowing the uh, policies that are going to be enacted. So as a result, all of these revolutionary forms of literature start to come about um, and organize people on a much wider um, and faster scale. Colonists see the newspapers, the broadsides and everything like that. They're a lot more informed about what is going on at the Union at any given moment. And they're also able to get their thoughts and ideas out a lot more quickly. I would imagine it also broadens perspectives and pulls a lot of things together, right? When you're, you know, limited or not necessarily exposed to things, um, often your your thinking is limited. And so the idea that you now have all of this exposure to new ideas, new thoughts, new concepts that challenge your original thinking, um, hugely expand the conversations that are going on during this time. Definitely. I think there is a fervor, especially among the upper class, 
in an intellectual way. And I think it's reflected ultimately in the way that we end up forming a government around a constitution, which it's the oldest constitution with a, a functioning um, government attached to it in the world. And I think that's a direct testament to the love of the printing press and the spread of ideas that permeated the early colonies. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I think, again, a remarkable uh, sentiment uh, regarding our own constitution um, and the challenges that come. But maybe even, if anything, a deeper appreciation for how accessible um, text printing um, and everything like that is for us today. So um, if anything, I hope this episode illuminates that we should be grateful that we don't have to write with ink, <laughs> iron gall ink, or rely on uh, printing presses to get our information but appreciating the privilege of widespread knowledge and also appreciating how easy it is to get our hands on books and things like that today. And I think in the future, Stephanie, the same way that books were seen as a mark of wealth, I think they will increasingly become marks of wealth in the future as we're able to more efficiently spread information in a digital format where you don't have to cut paper, bind the paper, you know, ship the book to the final location where you can just hit a website link or send. I think we'll progressively see books as uh, instead of a primary means of communication transfer, but rather back in that place of status and privilege, honestly. That's an interesting hypothesis. I I genuinely hope that books can always sort of be seen as a symbol of of democracy, uh, as opposed to necessarily um, wealth. But you know, who knows where we'll be? Uh, hopefully, always at a time though when you can go to your bookstore and and pick out a book or something that makes a deep impact and changes your life in at, at an accessible price. Um, so hopefully that introduces some, some cool concepts. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, printing has an incredible history that's so fascinating and interesting to look into. Um, but hopefully this primer just gets you excited enough to go out and do your own research on it as well. So I think with that being said, um, we will thank again, Jack, for their incredible research on this episode, um, but send you out to appreciate um, maybe some of the books in your life. So until we see and hear from you next, thank you so much for your support of this little podcast and thank you as always for keeping it lit just a little There's one.